Let us pray. Heavenly Father, help us to remember that all that you have given us is yours and that we are to freely give it back. And in knowing this, we may live all the more to your glory. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. For Father's Day, I think it was Father's Day, Julie gave me this little card and she signed it, Love Lucy. And this is the first card that Lucy technically gave me for Father's Day, although I realized it was Julie giving it to me. But there's something very precious about that, and there's a cute little card, and so I took it and I put it in my um, workshop so I can see it if I'm in there tinkering away. And it was just such a, I saw it the other day, and it brought a smile to my face, and it's a, it's a very precious thing to me, even though I realize the reality of it. But there's a, it's a precious thing to have that reminder of the little love that Lucy is growing for me and my love for her. And I think we all have these things, whether it be a gift from a child or a loved one that is just really precious to us, and we see it, and we, our heart is warmed just a little bit when we, when we see that thing. And what would you do if somebody told you to throw that away or give it away or somebody told me to rip up that card and, and toss it in the trash? If it was me, I'd probably, one, be upset and be like, no way, I'm not doing that. But um, <laughs> more realistically, if there was some reason I had to do it, I'd probably spend time looking at it and making sure I actually remember what that card looks like before I, I tossed it away. And that's what we read about this morning in Genesis 22 as we get to this shocking scene with the sacrifice or the calling of the sacrifice of Isaac. So it's obviously a much, much more grievous thing that's going on here, but God comes to Abraham and says, Take this thing that is really precious to you and give it back to me. And so we start this morning with the call of Abraham. And he goes and he gets called and he responds, Here I am, Lord. And this is that first, this is the test of Abraham. And he says to him, take your son, your only son, whom you love. And this is really interesting because this is the first time we hear of somebody loving their child in Scripture. The first time we hear of that parental love to their child. And that's, that's really amazing. But then what happens next is shocking. He says, offer him up as a burnt offering. To the readers of this, of this for the first time, to the Israelites who sat down and read this, they would have been shocked to read it. For, for the law forbid such things. And, and if we, even if we remember back several weeks ago when we, we went through Noah and the ark and what God said to Noah after that, he said, don't, don't, offer, don't, don't kill anybody. And yet here the Lord is telling Abraham to take his son's life. And perhaps we've read this passage too many times and we're like, oh, well, we know what's going to happen. You know, Abraham's not going to actually kill him. It's fine, blah, blah, blah. But when we read it even, we really should be shocked every time we read it. Because this is shocking. When I was about 16 or 17, something terrible happened. I, it's kind of like a cult or something from Boston. And they got in their head, hey, we should kill our child. And they went off into the woods of New Hampshire and actually did this. And I remember... A few years later, going to, to college and one of my professors talking about this passage and saying, you know, 
if God tells you to kill your child, you should say no. And, and here, Dr. Bauman was, was correct. Because we live in a different covenant. And we shouldn't be wandering around doing what Abraham does here. But why? This leads us to this really important question. Why is Abraham okay with this? First and foremost, he would have looked at his neighbors and seen this happen. It was, was relatively culturally normal to sacrifice your child to your God, to their God. And so as, as horrifying as it is, he might have just been like, well, I guess, you know, John's God does that, so maybe, maybe my God does that too. But something else is going on here that's a little deeper. Abraham has gone through so much. We've, we've been traveling with Abraham now for what, about a month or so? And he's starting to see something with God that God has continually provided despite himself. God has continually cared for him, despite Abraham. And so probably inside Abraham's head, he's thinking, well, this is weird. I don't know what's going to happen here, but maybe once I go, God will provide me with another sacrifice. Or maybe, or maybe Isaac will be resurrected, because I know that the Lord has made these promises to me, and he's going to provide a way to have them fulfilled. Or maybe Abraham just thinks, well, there's going to be some other way out. Regardless, Abraham knows that God has given him a son through what seems to be almost impossible circumstances. Therefore, he must be able to provide a way through this. And so Abraham has faith that this will happen because he's seen the works of God and knows that he can do it. my mother's side of the family, who actually watches this service, so hopefully I tell this story relatively accurately and don't get a phone call informing me that I was way off the mark. But my mother's side of the family are are devout Roman Catholics. And if some of you grew up in that culture, know back, go back, you know, about the last century, not, not modern day, the firstborn son was often the one that they planned to give to the church to be a priest. And they would raise that boy up and they'd be planning to send him to seminary pretty early on in his life and so on and so forth. Well, it just so happens that that man and my great-great-great-grandparents' child lineage was my great-great-grandfather, which we know that that didn't quite work out for them then, since I'm here standing in front of you. So, so anyway, he, he met a woman and decided, no, no, I'd really much rather get married and have children. That's kind of the family scandal, I think. Um, so I think I might be sort of a, a, an atonement for that in some people's eyes. <laughs> Not quite Roman Catholic, so anyway. The reason I'm telling you this is because there's something significant about the firstborn son in, in, in a lot of cultures, including as, far, as recently as you know, 50 or 70 years ago. The firstborn son would have been expected, in some cases, to carry on the family name. So it was a big deal for the Roman Catholics to say, well, this firstborn son is actually going to go serve the church, and he won't have children. And there was an act of faith there in saying, well, we'll probably have another son. But our, or the son was expected to carry on the family business, or so on and so forth. And so in, in the Roman Catholic's faith, in the, in the case of my family, what they were attempting to do is, is have this faith that, Yes, we can give this child up to the service of God, and it'll be okay. God will still provide. And this, in fact, is seen throughout the law as well. 
where the firstborn son was offered to the Lord, but they would offer in his place a, a sacrifice for him so that he wouldn't end up like Isaac is about to end up here. <clears throat> but all that is to say, it's easy to look at what we have. Like Abraham could have looked and been like, no, you, you promised that you, know, you were going to give me a son and I have my son now and he's got to go and get married and have children so you, you can do what you said. It's easy to look at all that we have, whatever that is that we have, and think that it's ours and hold it really close and never let it go. Which is why we, we sing at our offering that hymn, all things are thine, no gift have we, Lord, all gifts to, thee, to offer thee. And hence with grateful hearts today, thine own before thy feet we lay. It's a reminder of this truth that really when we give to the Lord, it's not ours that we're giving to the Lord. We're giving back to the Lord that which he has given us. And that's what's happening here this morning. Abraham has this faith that, all right, I'm going to give my son back to the Lord and I'm trusting that he will fulfill his promises to me. We have, a, we have a question on that, or? <laughs> All that is to say, we're trusting the Lord that he'll give that, that he'll provide. And so Abraham goes forward in faith, trusting, trusting this fact that the Lord will provide all that he needs. And he goes to this place, Moriah. And that's really interesting. He's going to this place, Moriah, and we might just read that and be like, oh, that's someplace off somewhere and never think more about it. But Moriah only ever comes up one more time in Scripture. Moriah comes up when Solomon is trying to find a place to build the temple to the Lord. And he builds it on the hill of, you guessed it, Moriah. Some have hypothesized that this actually goes on to be Golgotha. I, I can't quite get there, but there is that hypothesis, which would be really cool. But at the very least where this event that we're looking at this morning happens is where the temple ends up being built, the place where sacrifices were offered to Yahweh for, for centuries. And so he goes off, and as he, as he gets to, to Moriah, he says to his servants, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you again. Now, it would be easy to think, well, maybe he's just trying to like, mislead his servants and not let him know what, they're, what he's up to. But remember what we said about Abraham's feeling towards Isaac? He loved the boy. And I don't know about you, but a couple days' journey, three days' journey down the road is not long enough for me to fall out of love with someone, right? So he still probably loves this boy, he hasn't suddenly become cold-hearted. He's not trying to deceive these servants. But rather, I, what, what is going on here is underneath what he's saying to the servants is probably something much, much more like, I know that God is going to provide something so that when I do this sacrifice, we, my boy and I, will worship. And we will return. Abraham has seen enough that he can have confidence that he will return because he knows that the Lord has provided. He knows that the Lord has done so much for him up until now. 
Oftentimes we live in this forgetfulness. We forget about the fact that the Lord has done all of this. We forget how good he is to us. And we forget to live by faith. For those of you who remember last year and how rough it was in our church, we we had more funerals than I care to count. And in fact, I've lost track of exactly how many funerals we had. It was a hard year. It was a hard year for me, and it was a hard year for a lot of us. And we can forget in the difficulty of that what the Lord has already provided for us, for you and I and for all of the faithful which we buried last year. But there's something beautiful in our burial service too, something that that gives me great comfort and confidence and joy that I get to bury the faithful. And that's the very beginning of the service. The service doesn't start with me getting up and saying something warm and fuzzy. It doesn't start as we start so many services with a hymn, somebody's favorite hymn, or anything like that. It starts with these words. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me, shall never die. At the very beginning of the funeral service, we are reminded that the faithful that we are putting in the ground that day will rise again, just as you and I will rise again in Christ. We do not test the Lord in this by doing foolish things, driving 90 miles per hour down 89. We don't test the Lord by jumping off of buildings without parachutes. That's not what our faith in the Lord's resurrection is but rather it gives us confidence that we live our lives not in fear, not in the fear of death. We live our lives to the glory of God, even if that costs us everything. And we live in faith that he will provide. So that when we face hard choices, when we face the death of a loved one, when we face the inevitability of our own coming death, We can look at Christ and know of his resurrection. Know that he will raise us again on the last day. And so we can be like Abraham and know, I am going over there to worship the Lord and I will be back. And then something interesting happens. Abraham lays the wood on Isaac's back. And if you're reading this and you think of, well, who else had something laid on their back? You might think of Christ. And this is starting to point us to, foreshadow us to, the cross being laid on Christ's back. The very implement of his death. The very implement that that he will be sacrificed on is laid on our back. And Isaac acts here as sort of a type, a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ. And what good news is that? Yet again, we are reminded of God's provision for us. And then Isaac starts to wonder, well, wait a second. See, we got some wood, we've got a knife, we've got all these things. We don't have a lamb or a goat or, or anything. What's up, Dad? To which Abraham has a second time. He says, here I am. Here I am, my son. And, and, and Abraham asks him, 
or Isaac asks him, sorry, to which Abraham responds, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. God will provide the lamb. Just as he provided the lamb for us, he will provide for Abraham. And so Abraham walks in faith, and Isaac joins him. Because we notice when we get to verse 9, Abraham binds Isaac. There's no, no, no mention of a fight. There's no resistance. Isaac just lays down his life. He participates freely in what's about to happen. Because he's seen his father's faith, and he's made it his own. He knows that it'll be okay. And this horrifying scene, which should horrify us and would hor- and horrified the Israelites, does in fact point us to something else. Yet again points us to the crucifixion of Christ. And where we know that God takes a- Isaac out of this situation and provides an alternative for him. Christ is the alternative for us. And some have wrongly assumed, because Christ wrestles with this in the garden before he's crucified, that Christ doesn't want to go to, our, to the death for us. Some have hypothesized and wrongly called this something like cosmic child abuse. And this is not only wrong, it, it borders on and probably is heresy. Because Christ does go to his death willingly. Because Christ, who is in fact fully man, is also fully God. So it doesn't so well he wrestles with the will of his manhood with the will of God. He submits to that will. And the will of God decides, I will die for you. I will die for you. Because I have the same will as my Father, just as the Holy Spirit has the same will as me and as the Father. In other words, Christ shares with God, as we say, week in and week out, the same substance as the Father, as the Holy Spirit shares the same substance. And so Christ goes to his death willingly, as we are reminded this morning, as Isaac does the same. And then the Lord steps in, and we get the last, here I am. Here I am, Lord. He stops the sacrifice and says, look over there, there's a ram for you to use. And Abraham, who has up to this time walked in faith, trusting that the Lord would provide, knows that now he has. God provided the ram for Abraham, and God provides for us. We end this morning with three blessings. Because Abraham walked in faith, God says, I will bless you in these ways. He reiterates this blessing of the, of the offsprings being as many as the stars in the heavens and the sand on the seashore. seashore. I'm not going to sell seashells on the seashore. <laughs> he ends, we end with that reiteration of that blessing. And we know that this has happened. Israel is a great nation. And there are descendants from Abraham all around the world now. And so we know that his descendants are as many as the stars in the heavens and the sand in the seashore. Your offspring, God tells Abraham, will possess the gates of his enemies. And we see this, of course, when Israel comes back into the promised land and takes it back over. They possess those gates of the enemies. So this happens. But it also happens in Christ as he overcomes Satan. 
And finally, your offspring, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And this is finally fulfilled in Christ. And we wait for the totality of its fulfillment when Christ will come again, when Christ will reign, when every tongue will confess and every language will praise him. My friends, we have a tendency to treasure our gifts over the gift giver. We remember that God is the giver of all good things, of all good gifts, and that he will provide all that we need to glorify him, to sustain our walk with him. So take heart, my dear friends. Have faith. God is a a good at God and a good father. If he has provided for your salvation in such a good way as we have read this, as saw, seen this morning, he will provide for your daily needs to sustain you to the end. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.